broadcasting from the entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas. I am your host, Christopher Calloway, for Creator Talks, the entertainment show where I interview writers and artists working in comic books and in other mediums. On this show, I continue my examination of Ahoy Comics with writer Stuart Moore. He is the writer of Captain Ginger, which is illustrated by June Brigman. And Stewart is also the writer and creator of Bronze Age Boogie, with art by Alberto Ponticelli. We are going to focus on those two titles and also some of the behind-the-scenes work that Stewart does at Ahoy Comics. As a writer of novels and comics, I discuss with Stewart the importance of forming a team to create a comic book versus working alone on a novel. We also talk about Captain Ginger and how Stewart picked his artist, June Brigman, who was perfect for the title. We also talk about Bronze Age Boogie, why Stewart is suspicious of nostalgia. When was the Bronze Age of comics exactly? Can we agree when it started? And what are some of the other pop culture artifacts from the Bronze Age? And during the show's feature segment, kicking back with the creator, I ask Stewart, what does he like to do for recreation? His favorite birthday, the posters or pictures on his bedroom wall when he was growing up? What his island book would be? What his action figure accessory would be? His beverage of choice? The one project that got away and a book that changed the way he thinks. And so now please welcome to the show my guest, writer Stuart Moore, the scribe behind Captain Ginger and Bronze Age Boogie. Here now, on Creator Talks. Stuart, welcome to Creator Talks. Thanks very much. I'm happy to be here. You're a writer of novels and comics. With novels, it's all you. You're in control. But when it comes to comics, it takes a team. Tell me how important the formation of a comic team is to you. How you build your team, communicating with the team through the process of making the comic, and deciding what to keep or what to cut. That's a great question. And that whole process has changed a lot over the course of the time I've been in comics, because I've been doing this for a little while. It's also a very different question when you're hired to write something for one of the major companies. That's a different process than when you put a project together all by yourself. If DC, like I just wrote an eight pager for DC, which was a lot of fun. And in that case, they assign the artist, uh, the editor is usually pretty communicative these days and lets you know what's going on. And now that we're all constantly looking at screens, you can review artwork, you can usually, you're usually in touch with the artist in some way or another, which was not true back in the old days. Usually the writer and artist would just work very separately. And so would the colorist and the letterer. When I put a book together myself, like Captain Ginger, the book I do uh, with Ahoy Comics, I pretty much chose the whole creative team. I coordinate their efforts. It's all a little more on me, but I generally try to encourage as much communication as possible. The only thing you have to watch out for, and this has only happened to me a couple of times in my career, um, more when I was an editor, you can stumble into a creative team that drive each other crazy. And usually there are people who really admire each other's work and like each other, but just can't stop nitpicking. <laughs> and uh, there was one team, and I will not tell you who it was, when I was at Marvel Knights, that I had to keep apart. And they were lovely people and absolutely worshipful of each other's work, but they really could drive each other up the wall if they were in touch too much. But thankfully that almost never happens. So yeah, it's all about communication. It's all about just making sure um, the 
colorists have access to the script. The colorists show the work to both the uh, writer and the artist in most cases, but also that you organize things in a way that you're generally giving people as few rounds of feedback as possible so that they don't wind up making my changes, then going back, making the artist changes, then changing stuff to match the lettering. You don't want to waste people's time. You want to consolidate it as much as possible. It sounds like managing a band, a rock band. <laughs> Think how many bands, you know, they have tremendous talent and they create great stuff, but then they just they just can't stand being around each other after a while, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, um, we don't have to be in quite as close quarters <laughs> with each other, especially now. But in any case, it doesn't quite work that way. But that's a pretty good analogy. And, uh, you know, I have a couple of friends who are in both music and comics, but I haven't really had that discussion with them where one of the things I really like about comics is that, yes, as you say, when you write a novel, when you write a nonfiction book, uh, it's basically all you. Every word you write is what the reader sees. If you make a TV show or a film, there are dozens, literally hundreds of people involved sometimes. Comics is smaller. It's a smaller group. It's close collaboration. And that's what I really like about it. If you get the right back and forth going with a creative team, it can just be magic. It just really works. And a lot of it is just mutual respect, learning what your partners want. Some artists like very specific panel descriptions and others prefer to sort of riff off and break the book down more themselves. Same thing with designs and suggested reference, things like that. So it's a matter of getting to know your collaborators and figuring out how they're most comfortable and what results in the best work overall. It's just like being a manager in business. You know, when you have employees, <laughs> how do you motivate each one? They're all a little different. They take communication differently. Some like very direct, okay, I need you to do this. And others want a little more latitude, like, well, see what you can come up with and, and share it with me. It's, it's very much like a business environment in that regard. Yeah. With the nice uh, added bonus of that creative spark that comes up. When I write a script, June Brigman, for instance, on Captain Ginger, just likes to add little details, usually involving the kittens running around the starship. It's just wonderful. It's just wonderful to see. Well, before we get to Captain Ginger, let's talk about some of the behind-the-scenes work that you do at Ahoy Comics to make it all run smoothly. Yeah, Ahoy is a small company. Uh, we launched in 2018. I've written a several things for them, but I also... Um, handle publishing operations. I keep the schedules. I'm the liaison with Diamond for distribution. I'm sort of the hub at the center of the wheel. I try not to put out fires. I try to keep fires from breaking out in the first place. I kind of like doing that. I spent a lot of my career as an editor, and there's an element of that to editorial work. I prefer this because to me, it's an easier shifting of gears from writing. I usually write in the mornings. I'll do other work in the afternoons. And to me, that's easier than going from writing to editing, because in that case, the muscles are too similar. Like, it's hard to explain, but I really like the way this works in my personal workflow. Well, let's talk about your writing, Captain Ginger. This came about because it was written with June's cat art in mind, June Brigman, who does the art on the book. And tell me the story behind how the project came to fruition. June and I had worked together before on a comic called The 99, which was produced for the overseas market. And that was about 10 years ago. We got to like working together. One of the projects we did involving the 99 involved a bank or something. It was some sort of custom comic that was illustrated text featuring the young superhero characters from the comic book. I don't remember why and I don't remember where it was set. It might have been in Syria or someplace, but I had a scene with a cat sanctuary, just sort of like a, uh, uh, almost like a shelter for cats. And June just drew the hell out of it. She drew an illustration with cats in every corner climbing and every one of them climbing, running around, jumping on it, fighting with each other. And every one of them had its own personality. I hadn't really asked for that. And I looked at it and I thought, there's definitely something here. <laughs> and uh, 
a bit later, like once the 99 was over, I was just coming up with new projects. And I, I love starship stories and I love cats. And I thought, well, there's all kinds of art all over the Internet about space cats. But there really weren't at the time a lot of a lot of stories, a lot of actual narratives. So I created it with June in mind. I think it's the first time I've actually created a series for a specific artist that way. And uh, thankfully, she loved the idea. We produced about eight pages of samples, showed them to a few people. There were some near misses. She has other work. She tends to be busy. She draws newspaper strips, um, does some work for Marvel. And it just never completely came together until um, I started consulting for Ahoy Comics. And it fit in thematically with what they wanted to do, which was sort of intelligent, substantial books that all had a sense of humor in one manner or another. So yeah, it became part of the uh, the initial Ahoy lineup, and now we're working on season two, as we call it. And for listeners who don't know about it, basically the feeders have died out, and cats have taken over the starship. They are intelligent cats with personalities just like people, but with definitely a feline slant to it. The commander, Captain Ginger, struggles to herd a fiercely individualistic crew. It is like herding cats. Literally, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's literally what it is. And uh, one of the things I enjoyed getting into as the series went on was the fact that when you first see this, it looks like a starship crew like you've seen before. But the chain of command is actually very, very precarious because cats really aren't very good at following orders. Um, if, you've, no. if you've owned them, yes. and I've owned, a, I've owned several, I think June and Roy Richardson, her husband who inks the book, I think they have eight right now. Wow. They have had more. I think they're down to eight. So they have plenty of reference <laughs> crawling around and, uh, and shedding all over their drawing tables. It's a balance between uh, making them characters, like recognizable characters, and cats. And the other thing June did that wasn't quite in the original plan was she just drew lots and lots of little kittens all over the ship. I had to adjust the backstory a lot to sort of take into account why there were so many little cats all running around who don't talk and just sort of act like normal little kittens. And that's been fun. Everything sort of blows up in the uh, in the second series, which is coming out now and will resume. Um, we're going to have an announcement about that next week, actually. But it'll resume uh, in digital only publication. And then we'll publish the trade paperback in print and digital form in the fall. That's what we're working on now. Interesting. Now, is this fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic? Because I hear other publishers are doing the same thing. They're going digital with the next series or to finish the series, and then they'll include that in a print trade. That's exactly what we're doing. We're doing that only with Captain Ginger. The rest of the current books will remain um, in both formats. But Captain Ginger, we had two issues out already. To be blunt, it's not the highest selling book in the line. So it just sort of, all, all the elements seem to make sense to do it this way. For people that haven't read Ahoy Comics and a friend of mine turned me on to them, there's a lot of humor. That is the backbone of the series is that all the series that there's humor in it. And if you have cats or you've ever owned cats, you will see the personality of cats, kittens in this book. I mean, everything that's in the script, I'm like, yep, I've seen that behavior. I know that personality because we had a cat one time. Now we have a dog. And funny thing is, just this week, my wife said, you know, when the kids are older, we should foster some kittens. I said, really? You want to do that? I said, I don't know. She says, well, they give them back. I said, okay, because as kittens, they're lovable. They're charming. When they get older, they're like, get out of here. Go away, get away from me. They're very individualistic at that point. Very aloof. <laughs> yeah, I have to say our, our two cats have been wonderful during the lockdown. They've been a real joy. Um, but I, yeah, what people say about, I've, I've never fostered kittens. What I've always heard about them is the hard part is giving them back. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Because you can get very attached. Yeah, that's why I don't see us doing it. I can't see the kids being like, yeah, just give it up. They love animals too yeah. much to do that. Yeah. It would be hard for me, too, because you get used to them being around. You'd wind up adopting at least one or two of them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll look for season two coming up in digital and then the trade. Your other book, which is going to stay in print, is Bronze Age Boogie with art by Alberto Ponticelli. It starts out with Britta Constantina, and she starts out in 3949 BC. She travels to 1975 via this disco ball, and there's this War of the Worlds battle taking place in both time periods. She teams up with Linda Dark and Jackson Lee. And we also have apes as well, intelligent apes, controlling some of this traveling back and forth. It sounds wild, just totally off the wall. And I was like, I don't know. Then I read it and I was like, yeah, this was written for me. I loved it. I was laughing out loud. I got all the references, which shows just how old I am. (laughs) So there's a lot of nostalgia in there for me. You're suspicious of nostalgia. Why is that? For a few reasons. One is I think it's a trap in comics because um, almost everyone got into comics as a kid and has, uh, has very fond memories of reading them as a kid. In a lot of cases, sometimes when the rest of what was going on in your life wasn't that great. And I think if you bring too much of your biases to your professional work, it can sort of lead you down rabbit holes that your readers won't relate to. At the same time, I do love that stuff, and I love the comics of the 70s, and not just the comics of the 70s. Bronze Age Boogie is um, is all about pop culture from the 70s. It's about black exploitation movies. It's about uh, kung fu movies, that sort of thing. What I tried to do was uh, put together something with a, a mix of sensibilities, then and now, but drawing on, in particular, character types and genres that are a little underused now, that were more popular back then. And that includes things like the sniffer ape character is heavily inspired by Howard the Duck, who I've written a few times, Mm -hmm. and he's a lot of fun too. What it turned into was an exercise in um, throwing as much of this stuff together into a big pot as I could, and still um, keeping a coherent story, which unfolds very slowly, and hopefully making you care about the characters. Obviously, I'm much too close to it to tell whether I pulled that off or not. But the reaction's been pretty good. Oh, I think you pulled it off all right. And something else you do in the book, and I haven't seen this in quite a while, but there will be a text page within the story, not just separate text pages at the end, but there are. This was a text page as part of the story, as part of the explanation of what's happening. And it's done well, so it's not like too much exposition or too much text. Because I know some 70s books had a lot of text. Uh, I have to set aside a lot of time to read those. But you've worked it in in a very nice way that fleshes out the story and what has happened and what led us to that point. Well, thank you. I I was a little worried about those after the fact. I wondered. I got got mixed feedback on those. They are specifically inspired by... uh, some of the Marvel comics of the 70s. Writers like Don McGregor and Steve Gerber would use them quite a bit. I told uh, the letterer, Rob Steen, I said, can you match that ugly typeface they used to use um, in the books back then? He looked at it and he said, I think it's just Helvetica. <laughs> and, and then he came back a minute later and said, yep, Helvetica. So that was easy, I guess. Those pages are very useful because they let you cover a lot of ground and uh, throw out a lot of exposition and recap very quickly. I hope they didn't stop the story dead. It sounds like for you they didn't. No, no, they did remind me of Black Panther and uh, Kill Raven from the 70s, right. but it was a separate page with one piece of art versus like trying to jam all that text around the art and really mm-hmm. taking you mm-hmm. out of the story or distracting you from the art. So the way it's separated but still in the story makes it easier to consume and not take away from the artwork that was worked so hard on. Well, that's good. There was something that happened in the 70s that people barely remember at this point, which was everyone at both major companies 
thought comics were dying. Circulations were declining. We didn't have the direct market yet, so it was all newsstand stuff. Um, as a result, comic got shorter and shorter. They just kept cutting pages from the books. They went down from like 22 pages to 20 to 19 to 18, finally to 17. I think partly out of habit and partly in order to try and give the readers more for their money, writers started writing heavier and heavier. They started just cramming more and more words on the page. And yeah, some of that stuff looks pretty crowded now when you go back and read it. It just feels claustrophobic. Thankfully, we don't really have to do that anymore in comics. Most major company comics are 20 pages now. They were more like 22 for a long time. That was a particular habit of the time, and uh, that was not a style I wanted to get into. Like, I didn't want to start overwriting to that degree. But you did stuff it full of nostalgia and Easter eggs for people like me who remember the 70s. <laughs> okay. And it's got things that people would still recognize as being the 70s. Kung fu, barbarians like Conan, War of the Worlds type images. You, know, you mentioned some of the black exploitation films. And it's funny that yesterday I had this on my DVR and I watched Blackula for the first time. Oh, yes. which, and I was like, you know, I mean, it wouldn't fly today. Um, right. And there's a lot of edits in it because it was on TV. I'm very proud of broadcast TV. But I was like, that's a pretty good story. Actually, <laughs> you know, it's like a romance type yeah, story. Know, now I don't know if I've ever seen Blackula. It's like from 1972. And I'm like, OK, I know who the audience is. I know the kind of film it is. But let me just check it out. And I was like, that's actually pretty good. I mean, there's stereotypes in there that I kind of cringe at that would not fly yeah. today. But as a vampire story, I was fairly impressed with it. But I'm digressing. <laughs> <laughs> but the other things you work into the book, Spencer's Gifts. And I remember Spencer's Gifts. Oh, I mean, I went in there. Local mall, Concord Mall. Yep, uh, the clocks in the mall were these big, giant orange globes, kind of like Sonny and Cher's backdrop. Yep. Yep. on a riser that you could pass and walk underneath. So it was like very, very 70s, this mall. And there was Spencer Gifts, and they had the uh, the fake vomit, the yep. fake dog poop, which always got people, always. And uh, the spilt can of Budweiser was always a big one, too, that we liked to uh, drag out. Oh, and... yeah. Remember that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, remember, uh, I remember a lot of sort of board games where you were either supposed to get drunk or take your clothes off. And uh, <laughs> there was usually a section in the back with black light, um, <laughs> black light posters and yeah. Walk into that, <laughs> but here's the thing that blew my mind reading through it. You had some music references, and I knew those music references. And these aren't like, hey, it's Aerosmith, hey, it's Boston, it's the Eagles. You know, we're talking like some deep cuts here, like hot chocolate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, hot chocolate's a funny name, and uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, hopefully, it's funnier if you pick obscure things like that. I still have a lot of my 45s, I got rid of a lot of my albums. But I have 45, and I'm like, holy cow, I think I have that. So I have Everyone's a Winner by Hot Chocolate. Everyone's a Winner. Yep, that's the one. Yeah. Walter Egan's Magnet and Steel. I have that. <laughs> <laughs> so you can see why I was just like in love yeah. with this book. I was like, this is great. I grabbed a few here just to throw these names out here. The uh, Rubber Band Man by The Spinners. Uh, Year <laughs> of the Cat, since we're talking about cats. Yep. Yep. Al Stewart, mm -hmm. Robert Palmer's uh, Bad Case of Loving You. You have physical 45s. I have these? physical 45s. Wow, that's great. Moon Martin, Rolene. That's a deep cut. Do you still have a turntable you can play them on? I don't. Now, at least those are available. I can find them. I have a few albums left, like the first ones I bought. Uh, and I think the first one I bought was FM Soundtrack from the movie. Yeah, yeah. Remember, see, <laughs> we're from the same generation. Remember all this stuff? <laughs> but just those little charms, I just picked up on those. I'm like, wow, I would never thought I would have seen that reference in the comic. Fortunately, now when you're uh, when you're researching all this stuff now, you can just call up YouTube or Spotify and listen to any of it. You know. That's true. Get yourself in the mood. I kind of miss the TV dial. 
because with my internet connection, it's like, turn on the TV. You can't say turn on the TV quick. It's like, turn it on. Now find mm-hmm. the remote for the stereo. Okay. Now wait for the fire stick to come up. Okay. <laughs> it's yeah. like, it takes forever. <laughs> yeah. The soundbar is a little tricky on ours, but yeah. Yeah. Life has become somewhat more complicated the more we try to make it more convenient. It's so weird. <laughs> yeah. uh, talking about the Bronze Age, back to comics, you were introduced to the Bronze Age. One of the books that you were introduced to during that period was Marvel Preview Number 4, Star-Lord. Yes. That is the Peter Quill, not the exact one in the movie Guardians of the Galaxy, but that's what the character is based on. And were you into that kind of book back then at all? Right around that time, I think I was about 12 years old, I was very into science fiction. You know, you go through this things like this sometimes. Like, I thought I'd outgrown comics. Like, I really wasn't reading comics much anymore. I was looking for more serious science fiction, which is kind of stupid. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, <laughs> But I saw this. I loved the cover. I wanted it. And I bought it, and I really liked it. And that was by uh, Steve Englehart and an artist named Steve Gann, who I don't remember doing a lot. He might have done some of the Kung Fu books and things, too. But, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And uh, it was setting up a whole series. And, yeah, it was a very different sort of character. Um, It did not have the lighthearted humor of the Peter Quill we know now at all. Um, It was a very sort of grim story. Um, But it was setting up an entire series, and they didn't really continue it. The character was picked up again a few years later by Chris Claremont, and initially with John Byrne. That's a great issue, too. That's like a long story that the two of them did. And I think it was one of the first things they did with Terry Austin together before they all did the X-Men. It's a beautiful piece of work. Um, It's like 50 pages long. It's really long. But that took it in an entirely different direction. Um, And then, of course, later the Guardian stuff was a whole other thing. But yeah, I really enjoyed that. Uh, That first Marvel preview, it had a back feature, too, called The Sword and the Star, which I enjoyed. That was Bill Mantlo and Ed Hannigan, I think. Mm -hmm. Keith Giffen did some of it later. They did two installments of it, and they never came back to it. The Marvel preview was sort of like that. They just throw things out there. It was an anthology comic in black and white, and uh, some of the stuff was picked up and continued in other comics, and some of it wasn't. Yeah, those black and white magazines are great. I'm kind of digging through some of those now, and there's some fantastic art in there. Steve Gann, I recognized his name. This is one of those obscure titles that I picked up back in the 70s. Skull the Slayer. Didn't run that long. He was Yeah, he did the art on that. And that was a pretty good little dinosaur, prehistoric, time-traveling, lost land type of a series. I like those weird little one-off strange titles that didn't tie in with anything else. Was that in the color line or was that black and white? Yeah, that was a color line. Yep. Yeah, I think it ran like seven issues or so. Okay. Yeah, Bill Mantlo, he was my favorite Marvel team-up writer. Mm-hmm. That whole run with Spidey, again, the time traveling, going from the past, the Salem Witch Trials, up to the future. Oh, yeah. He did yeah, like the yeah. Kill Raven and Deathlock crossover. So they, it, was, it was a great series. I love that part of it. And that, again, was right in the middle of the Bronze Age. Mm-hmm. What would you define as the Bronze Age of comics? It's easy to say when it ended. More or less, it's around that time that we had Secret Wars and you know dc had their crisis on infinite earths but when it started i think is harder to pin down now you could say oh the cover price was x or kirby went to dc where would yeah. you say it started i have a hard time trying to put an exact date on it i haven't thought about it too much but uh i think that kirby is a good divider because what you had at that time was um you had big changes going on at both major companies well, they got kirby but that was also when you had uh, denny o'neill and neil adams working together and doing um Green Lantern, Green Arrow, and also mm-hmm. Batman stories. There was a general leveling up at DC at that point. And at Marvel, the big change was that uh, Stan moved up to publisher. Roy Thomas became editor-in-chief. And because of 
for details involving their distribution, the line exploded. They just increased the number of titles enormously. And that let Roy Thomas, he's known a lot as a writer. I don't know him personally at all, never worked with him, but uh, he's known as a writer. But I think one of his big contributions to the industry was he was a big fan of sort of pulp fiction and a lot of different non-superhero genres. And as editor-in-chief at Marvel, he brought all that in. He started Kill Raven. He had them doing science fiction books. He had them doing Barbarian. He brought in Conan. Mm -hmm. You know, I would say right around 1970 to 71, there were big shifts at both companies. And that's probably where I would date the Bronze Age from. Yeah, those are all very good reasons. Like I said, the Kirby and then, of course, Stan Lee stepping back as editor and letting Roy take that over. And he was no longer writing as much, being more of an overseer. And he did bring in Star Wars, too, not to forget. So That's right. Yeah, yeah he did yeah. a lot. Archie Goodwin was another editor. Uh, and yes. actually, he was editing that Marvel previews book. And did you know him? Yes, I knew him when he worked at DC. I have a few funny photos of us at a convention in Glasgow <laughs> together. But uh, he was a, just a wonderful guy. Um, by the time I knew him, he was working at DC. He did a bunch of things there, but he was uh, he was editing uh, like Legends of the Dark Knight, some things like that. And he had cancer. He went through several rounds of um, chemo and stuff. Always cheerful, always a nice guy. I think it was Paul Levitz who said like Archie always got the best work out of his freelancers. He wasn't a taskmaster. It was just people just wanted to do their best work for him. He was just that sort of person. No, he was really wonderful. And he didn't, um, you know, he was quite a good writer as well. And he did less and less of that as time went on. Uh, I, I'm not sure why. Uh, obviously, editorial work takes up a certain amount of time and energy. Yeah. You know, when we look back on the Bronze Age, for younger readers, what do you think were some of the, or are still some of the overlooked gems from that period, books that you like and you think other people should also check out? Some of this stuff is dated. And obviously, I'm looking back at it in terms of the way I read it at the time. Uh, one that I... Uh, I wrote about a little bit recently was um, a book called Star Hunters at DC with uh, David Michelinie uh, and Bob Layton worked on. It was basically about a, uh, a team of adventurers who were exiled from Earth by the corporation and sent on a um, quest for complicated reasons. In issue two, I think they find what they're looking for and their ship is destroyed. In issue, in the next issue, the main character is killed. <laughs> and then he comes back. But it just kept, uh, it just had all these twists. And it was very, very inventive. It suffered a little from, I think, probably editorial restrictions at the time, because often it seemed like 15 pages of action and then two pages of very, very crammed in plot. <laughs> um, and it also had a lot of different artists over the course of its run. Um, and it was canceled in the DC implosion in 1978. But there's some really nice stuff in that book. At Marvel, uh, most of the Marvel stuff has been pretty well written up. Like the real gems I think of are like Jim Starlin's Warlock, Howard the Duck, which is an enormously important book to me. In terms of like forgotten gems, I'm not really thinking of any right now, but because uh, I tend to think a lot of that stuff has just been covered pretty heavily. One of the things that concerns me is that a lot of these references in these books from the 70s, and I know because I've been rereading a lot of them, and some of the references I get, but I can see how somebody today would be like, Who's that? It'd be a politician or an athlete or something. It'll mean mm -hmm. less to future generations. I mean, I just look at uh, episodes of, like, say, Family Guy. There's a lot of pop culture jokes in those that might not mean a whole lot in 10, 20 years to the next generation. Do you think a lot of these things will hold up and stand the test of time, these comics and shows where there's a lot of current references? I mean, how can they succeed? I mean, the most important thing is to satisfy your audience now, your current audience. Yeah. But how do you think that's going to play out? I think that's a tough question, and I think the answer is different for each project. Personally, I have a real fondness for 
works of fiction that I can tell like could not have been made five years earlier or later. Like uh, one series I really like, this is really early Bronze Age, I guess, was Mike Friedrich's Robin stories that ran in the back of Detective and Batman. Mm -hmm. And they're when Robin first went to college. It was during time of campus unrest and protests and riots. Uh, Mike just threw him into this situation where the cops don't trust Robin because he's a kid and the kids don't trust him because he's an authority figure. So he's right caught in the middle. And I really liked that. But yes, I can see that someone reading that stuff now would not necessarily twig on it, would not really would not really appreciate it. I did a project last year called Batman Nightwalker for DC, part of the new ink line. It's a little confusing. It was a graphic novel adapting a Batman novel by Marie Lu. And I put a Brexit joke in it, and they asked me to take it out. I thought they were being sensitive, but uh -huh. they said, no, no, um, in a few years, like, people just won't get it. And I thought, yeah, that's probably a good point. That's worth thinking about. That's all things we have to consider. But, you know, at the time, though, I still enjoyed it. I mean, if you didn't have a lot of those pop culture references, and the book wouldn't have hooked me as much, the uh, Bronze Age Boogie. Bronze Age Boogie. Well, that's the that's the balance you try to walk, I guess. And uh, you hope that the story is strong enough that people will appreciate it, even if they don't get all the Easter eggs. Exactly. And another thing I just want to bring up about the Ahoy comic line is that all your comics, they have a usually a second story, a backup story, a, a short story that like we were talking about Detective Comics had for Robin. And they have also text. It's a very unique approach these days. You don't see a whole lot of that in comics. What we try to do with the text stories, Tom Pyre always tells the story that in the early days of comics, before you had uh, letter columns, you would have these little short stories that would be little science fiction stories or detective stories. And they were in there in order to um, justify the comic's existence as a magazine so it could get second-class mailing privileges for right. subscription copies. And they were usually terrible. They were usually just written by an assistant editor the day before the book had to go to press, you know. And Tom was the one who really approached this and said, what if we did these and actually made them good? That was the idea behind that. The back features, yeah, we were trying some things out in that. We're doing less of that. And to be honest, the reason is money. Those are expensive put in there. But we're trying to fill in with more and more of the text stories instead. So uh, hopefully that'll continue. Well, it definitely gives the reader more value. At least you feel like you, like you said, you have a magazine. And that'll also continue through the digital editions as well when you do uh, Captain Ginger? Yes, definitely. Um, that will. In fact, we're talking about ways to add even more value to those and we'll um, hopefully we'll be able to announce that soon. But yeah, what that brings up the larger um, point about Ahoy, which is it's been the best working experience of my career. And a lot of the reason is that Hart Seeley, our publisher, has just given us every tool we need to make these books shine. I think it shows in the product. I hope so. It does. It's a fantastic line. The more I dig into it, the more I enjoy it. So I've been, been just like consuming. I've been binging on a lot of it. I'm not binging a lot of streaming right now. I've actually taken some time off from that. Yeah, I'm not watching as much TV as I was. You've had enough as I have? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been reading more books, which is, uh, I don't know, sort of boring, I guess. <laughs> no, it's not boring. What are you reading right now? I'm actually polishing up a middle grade novel right now. So I've been reading a lot of young adult and middle grade stuff. I'm particularly fond of the uh, the young adult science fiction books of Amy Kaufman and Jay Kristoff. They did a series called Illumini, and I'm in a series called Aurora right now. And they're just sort of far future, completely balls out action science fiction, very inspired by recent Trek shows and movies and things like that, um, but with teenage protagonists. And they're just wonderful, wonderful stuff. And so you're going to be doing some more prose writing as well then? Yeah, yeah, I'm working on that right now. 
How are you managing the balance doing that and your scripts for Ahoy? I'm not on deadline with anything for Ahoy right now. Um, the Captain Ginger scripts were uh, pretty much finished a while ago. Like mm-hmm. I'm seeing those books through as uh, I'm the editor of those books as well. I'm working with the artists and getting the text stories together and things like that. But I don't have a lot of Ahoy writing on deadline just at the moment. So I, I had kind of cleared time to work on this novel before um, the COVID emergency. It sort of worked out. It actually sort of wound up being, to me, being... Um, being locked down is just sort of the universe saying, well, you don't have any excuses to screw around to uh, do your work. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, before we close, if you wouldn't mind, let's uh, cover my kicking back with the creator questions where I ask you questions to learn more about you as an individual. What do you like to do for recreation? I take long walks, which was a little difficult for a while. I'm starting to do it again. That's how I kind of like cool down, but also put together story ideas in my head. It just helps me get perspective. Um, I love walking around in New York. Under normal circumstances, you can just hear so much crazy shit that people say. Um, it's just, uh, uh-huh. it, it's, really, it's really fun. Now it's much quieter. Now it's actually much more calming, um, which is a whole different experience. Stuart, what was your favorite birthday? It could have been a long time ago. It could have been fairly recently. What was special about it? Wow. I don't tend to make a big deal out of my birthday. Jeez, you know, I don't know if this is my favorite, but I remember one while I was in college. My birthday's in February, and uh, it was so warm I could walk around in short sleeves, which is unusual for that time of year. And uh, I just remember walking around the campus and just sort of doing a lot of things and seeing a lot of different people. And that was a that was just a really nice one. Understated, just relaxing, seeing your friends. Yeah. Now, back when you were a teenager, mm-hmm. what posters or pictures did you have on your bedroom wall growing up? That room was a little crowded. I'm trying to remember. I can remember college a little more. I remember I had a poster for Star Trek The Motion Picture. I just really liked that poster. I think I like the movie, too, which I'm a little ashamed to admit at this point. Uh, <laughs> but I uh, just really like that uh, that shot. Growing up, you know, I know I probably had something black light up there, but I, I just can't remember what it was at the moment. That poster, that image for the movie was, I think, on the back of a lot of comics back then. Yeah, it was. It was. They advertised it everywhere. I remember that. Yeah, it's not the best Star Trek movie. The crew looked the best because they weren't that far from the original series. They're a good age there. Yes. Yeah. But I still liked it. Mm-hmm. This is a hypothetical for you, Stuart. If you were stuck on a deserted island, and this is not a survival question, for pleasure, what book or books, in other words, uh, it could be a book, a comic book, it could be a series of books that are related, volumes of the same set, what would you want to have with you to pass the time? I kind of feel like I am stuck on a desert island at the moment (laughs) a little bit. I'm working in my office right now, which is full of stuff. I don't know if this is the one book, but uh, one book that I need to come back to that I've read several times is actually a novel by... uh, Philip K. Dick, the late science fiction writer. And it's his last novel. It's it's called The Transmigration of Timothy Archer. And not too many people have read it. It's not science fiction, but it's just wonderful. It's actually almost impossible to describe. It's surreal in the way his science fiction is, but it's really just about ordinary people in California, a religious man, a bishop who's kind of, well, he's sort of died. It's hard to describe, but it's just a book I love. And it's got a, um, it builds a character in a way where you sort of get to know her and you don't know quite what's going on. But the end of the book just snaps it all into place in a way that's very, very difficult to pull off. Now, is that something you think you'd read more than once? I have read it more than once. I was just thinking I should get back to it again because it's been a while. Is that something that you get something else out of each time you read it? Uh, yeah, I think I have. At different ages, I think mm-hmm. I've read it different ways. Another thing that uh, actually another piece of entertainment 
and this is uh, <laughs> this is far less obscure, and a lot of people would say this, but something that affected me very different ways at different ages is the movie Star Trek: The Wrath of Khan, uh-huh. which is very much about getting older, becoming middle-aged, and learning how to deal with it. I think it's the most mature portrayal of Captain Kirk that William Shatner ever pulled off, and the script really hands it to him, but he pulls it off beautifully. I agree. That's actually one I have in my collection, my DVD collection. <laughs> yeah, me too. It's a great one. Last hypothetical, if Ahoy Comics were to make an action figure of you, <laughs> what would be your accessory or accessories? Oh, wow. Uh, wow, I'm clearly, I clearly suck at the hypothetical. <laughs> think for a minute. Uh, it would probably be a weapon or a tool or something like that. You know what? It would probably have to be one of those cat lint removers, uh, which I've been using constantly in my office uh-huh. because I've got this ginger who just comes up and just lies on the couch and just covers it with fur constantly. So uh, that probably wouldn't be a very good selling action figure. But uh, if we're going to be true to life, that's what it would have to be. <laughs> oh, accessory actually removes cat lint. That's great. Uh, I figured <laughs> it would be cat related. I thought maybe like a, your, your cat or something. But a lint remover, that's a great weapon. <laughs> Super rolling action. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's it. I'm going to have to stick with that. It's not very good, but I'm going to stick with it. Never had that answer before. I can see why, because we used to have a cat, and I'd always find like lint on my suits, and I'm like, I'm not lint, but the cat hair on my suits. So I'm like, oh, I had this. It's following me to work. <laughs> yep, constantly. <laughs> Stuart, what is your beverage of choice? Well, at the end of the day, I like a, I like a beer. I've sort of become a connoisseur of some of the newer session beers lately. I've a, we have a couple of actually really great uh, world class breweries in my neighborhood, and I miss going to them. But a lot of them you can still do takeout or mm-hmm. delivery. There's one called Folks Beer around here that uh, it's actually three blocks from my house. And they do a, an IPA called Recurring Dreams that's wonderful. I think they're up to the 36th version of it now. They number them. You might have to get a delivery of that soon, come to think of it. That sounds very good. <laughs> now, think about the one that got away. And what I'm speaking of there is a, a comic, a project, something you were working on or something you wanted. It was mm. close, but just didn't quite work out. This would have been in the early 2000s. When I first went full-time freelance, I remember pitching an Adam Strange series, and uh, the artist Phil Winslade and I wanted to do it together. And uh, that would have been a lot of fun. That wound up not happening. But yeah, that uh, I would still love a crack at Adam Strange sometime. I can't compete or complain with what Tom King's doing, because he's brilliant. Oh, it's great. But yeah, that's probably the one I wish I'd done. Now, is just the timing wrong for that? Were there other things going on they just couldn't fit it into the universe continuity? I don't completely remember. Looking at the files, I see I was talking with, uh, the editor I was talking with was Joey Cavalieri. But yeah, they may have had someone else had a take on it, or they just didn't see the pitch working. I can't remember. Now, we talked about your island book. Can you think of a book that you read that changed the way you think, gave you a new perspective on life? I don't know if I can think of one that changed me that much, but a recent book that really floored me and uh, made me sort of think about ways of telling fiction, Kelly Link's book, Get in Trouble, which is a short story collection. And she's just a brilliant short story writer who is not extremely prolific. She's got maybe four or five books of short stories in all. Get in Trouble, a lot of the books are comic book oriented. There's one about two starships called the House of Mystery and the House of Secrets. There's another one about a uh, young teenage girl who goes to a convention for superheroes, not a comic book convention, a superheroes convention, and winds up uh, getting involved with an adult dentist. It's a pretty disturbing little story, actually. But that book just sort of got me thinking about ways of crossing genres and uh, ways of using comics material as influence 
in prose fiction in ways I had never thought about before. It's it's just a wonderful read, too. I recommend it very, very highly. Okay. Final question. Thinking back to the 70s, which we consider the Bronze Age, what technology from that era do you miss? Something you think that eh, would still be kind of neat to have around. It's just no longer used. Hmm. That is interesting. Um, I was very immersed in CB radios. My dad was very in, into that. Mine too, yes. Uh, I can't say I miss them. (laughs) Um, Probably black light. That would have to be. I mean, it's not useful. It requires a, it's a pain because it requires a dedicated part of your house actually to to use properly. But it was pretty cool. It was pretty wonderful. I miss black light posters. Well, it's still useful, black light, because I have one. We use it for Halloween. But out here in Nevada, I use it to look for scorpions. Oh, wow. Because that's how they show up at night. Not sure if you have them in your yard or anything. You just take the black light and they'll show right up. They show up like they almost glow or something? Yes. Oh, yeah. Wow. The Natural History Museum, they have scorpions in a box. They'll have a little black light on in the box so you can see them. It is creepy. So there's something on their surface, on their skin or whatever. If you go to like a camp or something, they take you out to go look for scorpions in the desert. They'll take you out with a black light and you'll go looking for them. It's really that weird. Crazy. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So they're still useful. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, Stuart, thanks so much for being on Creator Talks. I really had a great time talking about your work and everything coming up, Captain Ginger, Bronze Age Boogie, and all the hard work you're doing on Ahoy Comics to make them a great line of books. Well, thanks very much for having me. I really enjoyed this. This was a lot of fun. Closing out the interview with Hot Chocolate, Everyone's a Winner. Well, I hope you enjoyed these past couple of interviews with Stuart Moore and a couple weeks ago, Tom Pyre, which shine the spotlight on Ahoy Comics. So please check those out. And just last week, you heard Terry Dotson talk about Adventure Man and X-Men Fantastic Four. And so for now, I'll go back to my every other Thursday for a podcast interview But I'm champing at the bit because I have two interviews coming up for books that are certified cool in previews catalog. And I always try to find comics with an interesting hook or concept explored by the author. But as listeners know, I also speak to artists, colorists. And coming up in two weeks is an interview that has been in the works for months. And the comic book has been in the works for years. But finally, it is arriving this August. Who will be my guest? What is the title of the comic book? 
Follow me on social media and find out. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. If you want to reach me, email is the best way. And you can get my email by listening to this podcast. That is creatortalks at gmail.com, creatortalks at gmail.com. However you choose to listen to the show, please spread the word. Let other people know about the wonderful guests that are on this show, the work they are doing, and the insights they provide, and the insights that we get into them as individuals. And if you listen to the show through Apple Podcasts, please give the show a rating and or review. It goes a long way to helping the podcast appear higher up in the Apple list of podcasts. And I know there are a lot of podcasts out there to listen to, and I thank you once again for spending time with me for this interview. We are still in the midst of a pandemic, so please social distance. It turns out six feet might not be enough given the way the virus transmits. And if you are unable to social distance, please wear a mask. The news on that is changing too. The news is changing every day, but one thing that won't change is I'll be back here in two weeks for Creator Talks. This has been your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.